Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. I have the doctor, dare I call him the frustrated doctor, dare I call him the doctor who can treat it as in own, his own ulcers, but uh, I guess um, 30, 40,000 of you have heard his story, so why not get the opportunity to meet him sort of face-to-face? Uh, this is uh, Dr. James Eversoll. Thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. So Glad this be would be your coming out as a voluntarist um, <laughs> moment uh, on the internet. And um, I guess my question is, um, what was the journey towards this madcap belief system? And do you think it helped or hindered your frustration with your profession? Well, I think, uh, I think that ever since I was young, I've been kind of guided by rational thinking um, and empirical evidence. So I kind of have gone along that, that route my, my entire life. Uh, I was an atheist from the time I was in high school. Um, my mom took me to uh, church every uh, Sunday, but my dad stayed in the uh, parking lot smoking cigarettes himself. And so, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I actually kind of read the Bible cover to cover and I've had a, a big interest in reading since I was uh, very young, even outside of my assigned reading. So I've kind of been very amenable to anything that kind of made sense to me. So uh, that's kind of how it all, all evolved. And, and uh, this, uh, it, Kind of hearing your podcast has kind of congealed everything that I was kind of already thinking all along. So basically, my worldview, right? Because there's there's a certain amount of accepted rationality, or I guess you could say culturally sanctioned rationality. So if you're an atheist or an agnostic, people aren't like, "Well, that's insane." They may disagree, they may strongly disagree, but they don't think it's mental. But the idea of a stateless society even though it's perfectly consistent with the way that we live, with the way our personal lives work, and if the government started ordering us who to marry and what to do for a living, we'd be all up in arms. But the idea of a stateless society, was that something that you had come to on your own? Then, you know, my podcast and other shows helped with that, or was it, did it come to you through the show? Because that's something that's really tough. It's a tough, a jagged big pill for people to swallow, I guess. Well, I... I I, I would uh, agree that I didn't come to the conclusion of a stateless society right away, but uh, um, I, uh, I certainly um, was very conservative in my views and uh, uh, like many uh, kind of went through the process of initially going through the political uh, you know, thought processes right. of uh, the classic Democrat-Republican – viewpoint and uh, voting and things such as that, but uh, um, I've kind of evolved past that now. When, you, when was it you first decided to become a doctor? Well, um, when I was very young, my, my sister is actually six years older than me, and she is a nurse, so um, she was kind of going through her training and I looked at her books and just my interactions with the doctors that I had that were my personal physicians. Um, um, I kind of wanted to do something where I could uh, do an intervention and make people better. That was uh, one of the reasons that I kind of picked my specialty was because I like the idea of feeling like I could handle a wide variety of problems and and do something that I could actually see the direct benefit 
from them. Like if someone has a cut, I can sew it up. If someone has a piece of metal in their eye, I can take it out. Uh, uh, if somebody has, you know, an illness, I can stabilize them. So it's, it always has, uh, been pleasing to me the idea of intervening and changing a bad situation into a good one. Oh yeah, I can imagine it's an enormously you know the philosophy gig, uh, the philosophy game. It sort of feels like pushing string into a windstorm. Sometimes <laughs> you don't really see a whole lot of effect, but I imagine that it's very satisfying that way uh, in terms of healing people. Did you, or I guess when did you sort of first start to feel the seaweed tentacles of the state beginning to wrap around your uh, your dreams and ideals? Was it in school? Was were there any horror stories before that, or was it more when you got out into the world as you as you wrote to me? It was uh, pretty much when I when I got out into the world. I actually did some time in the military, so um, I've been kind of involved in that in that area as well, with being more of a kind of property of the state, mm. which is essentially what you are as a military uh, member. So I did, I've, I was in the Air Force for nine years. And this was after you were a doctor. Yes. Yes. Okay. It was. But I mean, imagine, um, I, set for, I guess in the military with limited liability and so on, you probably didn't face, I mean, you obviously in your whole life outside of medicine, you would face more government restrictions. But I imagine it was a little bit different when you started dealing with people in the remnants of the free market rather than uh, as, um, uh, as an army doctor or as an Air Force doctor. Exactly. Yes, it certainly was. And what were the big changes um, the, there? Uh, well, um, First of all, in the military, there's no uh, real personal liability. You have uh, corporate liability, and uh, but you can't be sued personally for uh, malpractice, things like that. Um, of course, the, the downside of being a military member is that you basically have no control over your own life as far as where you go and and things like that. So they're going to tell you where to go and where your family's going to go and that type of thing. But uh, um, that was just kind of a, a double-edged sword with it. But uh, um, I was certainly glad to get out into the, to the, to the free market <laughs> out of the military and gain more freedom over my life and where, where I was going. Right. And was it um, – because uh, obviously in, in the letter that you sent – I'll link the video of the letter that you sent uh, below this. Was it sort of a slow accumulation of, of frustrations that, that caused you such – I mean a, a completely understandable upset uh, that, that prompted the letter. Was it a slow accumulation? Was it something sudden and particular uh, or was it the old straw that breaks the camel's back? I think it really, really became evident when I – actually got into the entrepreneurial aspect mm. of it um the uh, uh having to go out and having the experience of what it would be like to start a business and having to uh put your own money out there and your sweat equity and and uh worry about it 24 7 and worry about liability issues and and uh worry about actually the the welfare of your own family as far as your financial uh if if you know your practice failed that type of thing so um that was the that was the main time that i can think of that 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 really 
you really got a feeling of what it was like with the regulate over regulations and and liabilities and things like that. So when you started your your practice, um, I, I know that you did uh, ER work for a number of years. And when you started your practice, how did you go about even apprising yourself of the regulations? I wasn't you sort of oh I want to go start my own practice. That's a great thing. Then does somebody sort of thump you down with like sixteen? thick books and say, okay, just conform to this and you're good to go. Do you have to hire someone? I mean, how does it work? Well, basically the way I did it was I hired a company to do all of my insurance credentialing and things like that. And then uh, the insurance companies each have their own requirements um, as far as uh, um, rules and regulations. And then the uh, you have the federal the federal regulations, the OSHA regu- regulations and the uh, – uh, and uh, the uh, uh, you know, Americans with Disabilities uh, uh, regulations. So uh, um, it's uh, it's you can't really know all of the regulations uh, because they're just too voluminous. So um, you just have to ask other people and kind of get the 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 lowdown. You you buy products that are already out there to try to help you. Uh, like OSHA and a, and a nutshell type of thing that come in kits that you can try to learn, but there's you're still out there with it as far as not knowing all of the details of of every regulation there is. And so it, it's a moving target, right? Actually, I mean, they change every it is year. Definitely target. That's right. Okay, now, so I, I was really struck, and I was, I was sort of mulling this over when you were talking about the need for a deaf interpreter. If somebody comes into your clinic, from so the, the devil's advocate position would be, well, they get sick too. Deaf people get sick too. They need they need help. Uh, so uh, this is one example that you gave of regulation that became very hard to fulfill. I mean, I don't agree with the state providing the solutions, but I do, of course, like everyone, like the idea of deaf people having access to easy medical services and not right. having to go to some specialized right. place. Uh, what's your argument against – not against servicing deaf people, but against the, the way the regulation was imposed? Well, I think my point there was that, uh, that you could be held liable under ADA regulations even if you don't know of an interaction that your employee told someone. Like if – uh, if an employee tells a deaf person that you don't have an interpreter, then they leave, and then you are open for for liability. It's uh, but but certainly, if a deaf person comes in and I knew about it, you know, I would go ahead and do whatever. I mean, you can write on a pad of paper. Sometimes they read lips, that type of thing. But it also applies to people who don't speak the language, too. So who don't speak English. Uh, that you have to provide an interpreter as well. And given that there are uh, several hundred human languages, uh, all of varying, um, I guess, levels of, of um, rarity around where you are, it, it would be impossible. I mean, functionally impossible to have that level of interpretation. I guess you can arrange for someone ahead of time if, or, you know, get a family member who speaks both languages, but that's quite a lot to ask for uh, a private clinic to provide that kind of service. Well, there are some uh, there are some telephone based uh, interpreter, oh, right. but it's very uh, very very tedious. You have to go back and forth um, with the telephone like this, back and forth with the person you're you're dealing with. So it's it can be quite time consuming, <laughs> right? Right. To say the least. You also mentioned about 
being able to let go of uh, em- employees who weren't working out. And I mean, I come from the software field, so you know, the uh, everybody is always hanging by a thread, including senior management. And letting people go was a pretty significant part of what I do. I mean, not necessarily due to incompetence. Some people just like a slower pace. Some people like a faster pace. And it's just not necessarily a good fit. But the company doesn't have anything to do with the judgment of overall competence. But in your area, it seems very hard to um, uh, to get rid of people who aren't working out. Uh, why is that? Well, um, we 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 did actually have cases, a couple of cases where we were literally being stolen from our, the co-pays, the cash out of our cash drawer was being stolen by an employee. Um, and I did, we did fire that particular person, but, uh, um, but there are, it's, it's just, I, I suppose it's partly rational, partly irrational fear on my part about potential liabilities in the event you get rid of someone that, 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 uh, you know, there's going to be some allegation that it was secondary to some, factor uh having to do with the the employee as far as something which 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 could be considered discriminatory right um so i don't i don't think it's particular to this particular area it's probably true across the board um, so if you had three from, if you had three you know if i'm a genie who granting you <laughs> three wishes to improve the practice of medicine uh, in the united states what would the top three things that you would suggest would be the best thing that uh, that could occur well, um, I think that uh, certainly going to a more of a, a, a free market um, model um, and getting away from the central government controlling um, controlling uh, your practice, every detail of your practice, it, it certainly provides a better product. I mean, I was successful in my practice because – Lots of people wanted to come to to me as opposed to going to a hospital based clinic, uh, just because it's a better product and it it has to do with a lot of different factors. Mainly being that the owner of the business is actually working in the business. You're not an employee. You're not an employee of a hospital um, entity uh, where you know there may not as be as much empathy uh, because you're just working for an hourly paycheck, that type of thing. So certainly, um, you know, decentralizing would be, would be my, my uh, biggest recommendation for uh, the field just because uh, um, you get into the bureaucracies uh, and, and uh, hospital systems are kind of not unlike the government bureaucracies. There's, uh, they're just loaded with deadweight administration uh, types that uh, um, basically just impede any kind of innovation. Um, when you're working in a hospital system, you can't just make a decision and have it occur the next day that the change is made. You've got to have several committee meetings and things like that, and, and it's very resistant to any kind of innovation and positive change, whereas when you're lean and mean – you can you can make these changes and you can provide such a better product and and you can your employees i mean my employees were also a part of the family basically we were very i was very good to my employees they were um they were compensated very well um we kind of felt like a 
a team. Mm. And, and it's much much easier to do on a smaller scale than it is uh, the larger corporate type of bureaucracy, similar to the government bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, it seems that wrapping yourself around regulations and fear of lawsuits provides a kind of, okay, we finally got this thing configured to optimally not get sued and to comply with regulations. And if you want to come and change it, it's like pulling a little matchstick out of the bottom of a huge structure uh, that could cause it all to come down. So, um, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I don't want to tell you anything about the practice of medicine, but the sort of layperson's thoughts that come into my head is there's a continuum, right? I mean, obviously, there are bad doctors who do stupid things and dangerous things, and they should be held accountable. You hope that they would get right. weeded out in school uh, beforehand, and you hope that the insurance companies would not want to have anything to do with them. So there's, you know, there's ways of dealing with that without regulations. But there is, of right. course, a belief in... Um, in the perfectibility of medicine, that we have this platonic ideal of the perfectibility of medicine. I would go to a doctor, I would get a pill, all will be better, no mistakes will be made. And that, of course, is completely unrealistic. And of course, if people want doctors to be perfect, then we should not be controlling them so much. If we want doctors to be better, we should not be having them have 40-hour workdays uh, during their grueling uh, post-school but uh, pre-full license uh, scenario. Uh, and so there is this weird unreal expectation. I don't expect food, perfect food, to fall out of the sky onto my plate. But people do have a belief in doc- like healthcare should be. For- I need if I need it, I have to go and, and someone should give it to me. Uh, and there is this sense of entitlement around healthcare, which is kind of frustrating to me because you know sixty, seventy depends how you count it. Sixty, seventy, eighty percent of uh, health problems are lifestyle related to put it as nicely as possible you know smoking too much drinking too much not exercising doing dangerous sports whatever it is going to be and so it's to me you know if you roll the dice then you take your chances i mean if you want to live a risky lifestyle if you want to live a sedentary smoking drinking skydiving kind of lifestyle i think that's fine i mean i can't tell anyone else uh, how to live and what level of risk is acceptable to other people but there is this belief that you can live as riskily as you want and then when you get sick by God, somebody's just got to be there to provide it for you. And if, if they're not, then society is holding back something that it legitimately owes you. And I think that sense, I don't know, as a doctor, do you see that sense of entitlement a lot? Is that more, maybe it's more up here in Canada where we have completely socialized medicine? Well, um, what I really dislike about the way that the medical profession has evolved, uh, and part of this is, is societal, in that uh, the pharmaceutical companies have marketed uh, for so long, and we've been so indoctrinated in the idea that the solution to every physical and mental problem is a pill. Um, and, uh, this, and, and we even believe as a society that preventive medicine means you go into your doctor for regular checkup and checkups and get your cholesterol, your high blood pressure pill, your diabetes pill, and that that is the perception of what preventative medicine is. But really, it's just exactly what you said, which is, uh, you know, it, it, you know, your, your great-great-grandfather didn't take one pill and may have lived to 100 years old. I mean, it's, uh, it has to do with your lifestyle, your habits, your, your diet, and uh, your exercise, and, and whether you smoke, whether you drink, and plus a, a certain degree to your genetics. But uh, um, that's what really uh, why emergency medicine was more appealing to me because it was more of a you could definitely see 
that you were causing a benefit to occur. If someone's got a collapsed lung, you put in a chest tube. If someone's not breathing, you can put in a breathing tube, that type of thing. And you can see definite results of what you're doing. Whereas if somebody's just going in every six months to get, you know, blood pressure medicines refilled, um, then, you know, that's not really helping the patient. It's not really prolonging their longevity, I don't think. And it's not making the quality of their life better. Right. And because there and, is uh, the uh, idea that a pill can cure them, they probably are less open to lifestyle changes. Like, oh, no, I got a pill. You know, I got my exactly. blood thinners. I got my high blood pressure medication. I've got my antidepressants. I've got – well, at some point, you could change your life. No, 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 no. I have all these pills. That's all I need is the pills. And, and I think that gives – like up here in Canada, it's crazy. I saw this study recently – I think 50% of people who are told by their physician what they need to do to manage their diabetes just plain don't. And it's like, right? but okay, I mean, you're going to pull an elephant's Gerald, get your leg cut off. But I mean, just, ugh, you know, I mean, even when they're pre-diabetic, they don't do much to avoid it. Uh, there's just this weird thing where it's like, I don't know, we feel like cars that can be fixed up forever, but it just seem, doesn't seem to be quite true. Well, um, the pill, the magic pill hypothesis is definitely out there. And I think that the, the uh, pharmaceutical industry has a lot to do with that. Um, they, why would they want you to go off their medicine? They want you to be on your, their medicines for your entire life. It, it is not in the best interest of, of their, and it's not in their best interest financially to have folks not need their medicines. Right. So they spend billions and billions of dollars to market directly to the public and and actually to to physicians as well and and if it didn't work they wouldn't do it. Right. And it works. It definitely works. You mean the marketing that the work. pill will cure your ill kind yes. of thing? Do you yes. think and I, I I'm sure you know the the economics of it is is something that just like literally gives me a little tick right here a little <laughs> Little facial tick because we we all understand that that getting some exercise, eating right, you know, not smoking, that these not drinking too much, these things are just so economically valuable. I mean, there's not a huge amount of time, it's not a huge amount of effort. I spend I don't know three or four hours a week working out. I mean, that's like one night's person consumption of TV in, in on average. So it's not really that big a deal to do that stuff. It keeps you you know healthy. It's the, your best shot to stay healthy. And to get on a pill, to the, take three or four pills a, a day for the rest of your life and, and worry about all these things and, and have all of the escalating complications that occur from people aren't complying to the things they need to do to do lifestyle changes, it just seems it's so economically valuable. But it seems there's such a weird economic incentive. I can't quite figure it out. Maybe it's because the government pays for a bunch of pills. Maybe it's because doctors don't like to really confront people about lifestyle choices. I mean, do you have to sometimes be quite aggressive with people who are just living unhealthily? Is there a risk of emotional volatility in that interaction? I don't know exactly how it comes about that this pill culture has become so prevalent. Well, from the, uh, from the doctor standpoint, it could be that they – it takes a, a lot longer – uh, of patient contact time to counsel them on things like that. Mm. Um, whereas uh, the way that medicine has been driven most recently is that uh, um, they have to see more patients in a shorter amount of time. Mm. So there's a very short window of time that they have to, and it's simply easier to write a, to write a pill. 
like this disease equal this pill, this disease equals this pill. And unfortunately, um, that's what oftentimes gets, gets done. And then once those pills are started, then it takes a very, it's inertia. Uh, they're usually just continued indefinitely. And actually, they're even added to. They're, I mean, uh, elderly people are, are taking bushel baskets full of pills, and they're coming in, and uh, there's just so many potential interactions. I mean, they become exponential when you start getting that they're taking 10 to 15 medications. I mean, the, the cross-reactivity potential there is... Well, it's it, it's unstudied. Uh, obviously, you can't study that many com- that many combinations. I guess also if if it becomes established as you know best practices, you know you have this problem, you prescribe this pill. If you do that, then you covered liability wise for the most part. It's like everybody does this. This is the best practices. This is what I learned at the seminar. This is what everyone is being told by whoever the drug companies or whatever. And so if you're doing the best practices, you have less liability. And I guess also if you say to someone who's got high blood pressure, here, take this pill, uh, and then six months later say, you know what, stop taking the pill and start exercising, the guy might say, well, wait a minute. Why was I on the pill if now you're taking me off the pill? And if exercise could do it beforehand, why are you telling me to get off it now? Hey, you know, that kind of stuff. So there is, I think, that inertia of not wanting to change without some externally valid reason, not wanting to change your approach. So it's like, yep, just write that script again and I'm covered kind of thing. That's true. And uh, just to go over a little bit about how pharmaceutical companies infiltrate physicians' practices – um, they have very attractive, detailed people that come into medical practices and with the express purposes of marketing certain new products that they have, like antibiotics and, and different types of proprietary medications um, that are, of course, very expensive and much more expensive than your typical generic medication that may treat just as effectively and a lot of times safe, more safely because they've been time tested. Um, and they'll come in and, uh, of course, the, the staff likes to get free meals and, and um, things like that. So, and they like free pens that have the name of whatever drug they happen to be you know, pushing at that time. I mean, there was one example. I won't mention any names of the drug or the drug company, but um, heavily marketed. The the drug reps were in there every week um, with balloons and pens and uh, about this new antibiotic. And they even give you free samples, which is also the the kicker. They give you free samples that you then you know justify it rationally by saying, well, I can give it to people that can't afford medicine. I can give them samples. Um, but um, this particular antibiotic, and, and there's many, many other examples, you know, they, all of a sudden, after a few months, there were problems, and they withdrew it from the market. Um, so, but this was already out there, you know, with all these, and, and I was just one practice. So, um, you know, if you expand it to all across the country, a lot of people were given this drug just based on this huge marketing program. And then it was all of a sudden withdrawn. And that, that takes place with a number of different drugs, you know, that, that have that have come out. They're they're these new innovative drugs and they're all of a sudden pulled. And actually at my practice, um, I eventually banned drug reps from coming in. I did I told them to take their samples out and take them away and and that there would be no more, you know 
pens, no more clocks. Um, and uh, what really was the last straw on that was uh, I had a drug rep come in and, and tell me that uh, asked me why I thought you were on board with this medication. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, we can, we can tell you're not prescribing this. <laughs> so they have access to data on your prescriptions. And then it just kind of angered me to the point I said, well, that's it. All drug reps are, are banned from the, from the office, which is what I did. So, uh, and it made me feel better ethically, too, because I, I think it is an eth- unethical um, to have uh, these companies that are directly marketing to physicians uh, and providing information which should not come from the people selling it. Right. And I mean, as far as I'm no expert on this, but um, I had Dr. Ruart on the show uh, talking about the FDA approval process, which is really slanted. Like you can run as many trials as you want and you only have to show two positive correlations, which simply by the law of averages, you're going to get sooner or later just on the bell curve. Uh, This stuff seems very dicey. I just was reading this thing about how kids on ADHD medication uh, year after year after year, like nine tenths of them show no improvement whatsoever, but they just they're stuck on it. I mean, this is just, that's the solution. You can't change the schools. The parenting could be abysmal. The neighborhood could be crappy. It might be a single parent household. There might be three kids too many, but none of those variables society wants to tackle. So we'll just drug the kids and and with very sketchy uh, scientific backing. And of course, as you know, massive side effects, potentially very, very dangerous side effects. The black box labels on on that stuff is is pretty, pretty scary. But that's, you know, as a society, we don't want to change ourselves. We just want to have a quick fix. And, um, of course, the pharmaceutical companies then do that. The doctors uh, find it more profitable to see more patients. The patients are relieved that they don't have to change their lifestyle. It's just that it seems each individual decision kind of makes sense in a small context. But in our overall context, it just seems like pretty much the wrong direction to be going in health-wise. I totally agree. The uh, the ADHD uh, subject, uh, it was. It's amazing to me, just empirically over the years. Um, it and it's really sad about uh, Medicaid beneficiary kids. Um, I just have. This has been my own personal experience, and I'm I'm sure that most other doctors would agree with me. Is that there is a much higher use of those medicines among Medicaid beneficiaries and it just makes sense that there would be because uh um of basically what you have talked about about the 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 home life and things like that uh in that the single parenting uh the lack of of uh bonding as infants and children which uh um as you know causes hardwired changes in the brain um, that may lead to some behavioral issues along with parenting problems. I mean, I can, I can see it when I walk in a room, even in the short period of time that I'm seeing a child, um, that they're on all these ADHD meds, and I can see the dysfunction in the way that they interact with their mother and their, their whatever parent happens to be in the room. For example, if you walk in the room to see a child and the mother is staring, texting on a cell phone and then talking to you but not looking up to look you in the eye. Mm. Now, that's, that's a big you know, red flag for me as far as there's some dysfunction in the household. And you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical about the, the diagnoses 
Uh, I think a lot of times you have these diagnoses that I, I say it's a diagnosis in search of a disease <laughs> uh, <laughs> because there's no real pathophysiological or pathologically identifiable um, property that can be objectively proven. Yeah, or they say, oh, it's uh, correcting a, a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's okay, well, show me the test. I mean, you know, you might as well say, you know, you got gored by a unicorn and that's what we're going to fix with our magic pixie dust. I mean, where's the actual test? But that's, of course, that's a pretty big, uh, a big subject. As a, as a doctor, though, I mean, gosh, I just imagine trying to approach the, the subject of family dysfunction with patients. I can imagine that would be a, a bit of a cliff edge uh, as a practitioner. Well, obviously, when you see major things, you're obligated to report uh, them if you suspect that there's, you know, physical abuse and sexual abuse and things like that. And, and it's not only legally and morally, you know, obligatory to do that, but, but there are some things where you just kind of get a gestalt and you know that things aren't right, but there's really nothing you can do about it. You're, you're kind of seeing, uh, in my case, it's episodic care. I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of patients for a specific problem, an, an illness or an injury, and getting them back to their regular doctors, that type of thing. And I think also, if I remember rightly, if you can get your children diagnosed with a mental disorder, uh, you actually get supplemental income uh, through disability insurance as well as, I think, a social security disability insurance. I'm not sure of the exact terminology, but um, you actually get more money. I mean, the drugs are paid for and you get more money if you can get your kids on these meds. And I'm not saying that that is the motive of the majority of people who have these kids as ki- uh, who have these kids and, and are their parents, but boy, it, it really does seem to be exactly the wrong way that you'd want to <laughs> design that kind of system. Kind of a secondary gain yeah, yeah. issue. Yeah. Uh, encouraging, and, and, and of course, once these diagnoses are made, then come the drugs, which, you know, once they're started, they, it's very unlikely that they're going to be stopped by anyone. That's oh, yeah. Who's going to want to take that chance? Who's going to help the kid to detox? And who's going to deal with the behavior that's been suppressed, if any, by this drug? And of course, the way it's often sold is, well, you know, it's like it's like insulin for diabetes. You just have to keep taking it. Uh, you will forever uh, be this way. Uh, and uh, oh, man, I mean, boy, if, if people knew the incredibly sketchy science behind this stuff, um, I think that'd be quite... Uh, a revolt against it, but you know they've got these lovely soothing ads and they've got these uh, fine-sounding uh, uh, pamphlets and uh, you know the, the 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 sketchiness of it all just seems very dubious and uh, what a what a complete tragedy. And again, it's the usual thing: society has lots of problems, but it's those who have the least power who are expected to bend so that society can continue without addressing its problems and problems with school and family and and society as a whole for kids. Um, it's kind of wallpapered over with this stuff, which I think does have a lot more harm than good. Yes, I would totally agree with that. So what's, um, what's coming up for you in the future? What's your, what's is your thing uh, now? I mean, I know you've scaled back a little bit and you're looking at other things. Uh, do you have anything coming up that uh, has really got your uh, salivary glands cranking out? <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I made a trip to Barbados a couple of months ago, so I was kind of uh, exploring an, an opportunity there um, to take care of uh, patients from the United States, Canada, and England who um, unfortunately are experiencing 
socialized or nearly socialized care. Mm. And so the, a lot of delays and things like that. And, and uh, um, there's, I explored an opportunity on Barbados to take care of patients who would come in and be seen by U.S. trained doctors in Barbados. Uh, so I explored that a little bit and um, heard a podcast yesterday of Doug Casey uh, with his little community down in Argentina. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. So, that's right. so, so I've been kind of having these mental fantasies about expatriation. <laughs> but uh, I imagine that's going to become increasingly more difficult as well to, to actually accomplish as time goes by. But uh, um, I'm also contemplating the possibility of, uh, of just not participating in any uh, government or private insurance and possibly doing a, a walk-in clinic. And with all that overhead eliminated, I could probably just get it down to X amount to see a patient and, and then the, see them and the deal is done. And and that that sounds kind of appealing to me to do to do something like that. I don't know if the the time is right for that or not, but uh, I anticipate it will be before long. Well, I mean, I, I hugely appreciate the the letter that you sent in, and uh, it is great to get the perspective from the other side of the desk. You know, all of us people desperately <laughs> droning around looking for healing. Um, it's it's easy to forget what it's like on the other side of the desk. I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, that with us. And, of course, um, uh, I, I do forgive you for talking about moving to Barbados to a guy in Canada in February. Uh, it's not easy for me to do that, but I am going to grit my teeth and, and find a way in my heart to, to like you again. Um, but um, uh, if you do end up in any of these places, uh, particularly if you do end up in a, you know, opening a clinic up, if there's anything you want to send me, I'd be happy to help publicize it because um, you know, it certainly seems like you're an excellent doctor from where I sit. And uh, any more patients that this show can drive you way I think would be very well served by what it is that you're doing. Thanks a lot, Steph. And uh, thanks a lot. Have a great night. I hope to talk to you again. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.